Welcome to the Oxygen Advantage podcast with your host, Oxygen Advantage founder, Patrick McKeown. With the Oxygen Advantage podcast, we aim to show how functional breathing is an essential part of a healthy and well-balanced lifestyle. Each episode, we meet experts in their field from around the world and talk about their lives, their experiences, and how they learned the importance of breathing. Join us and get inspired. Get the Oxygen Advantage. So I'm here with Dr. Louise Oliver and uh, yeah, this is going to be very interesting. I always think it's brilliant when we have a GP and uh, to talk all about breathing. And I have to con- confess a little bit in that when I started off 2002, not so many GPs felt that breathing was was part of their forte. So um, Dr. Oliver, it's great to have you on board. I'm going to call you Louise now from here on in. And uh, we're going to have a conversation about a topic that probably I avoided and most men avoided and probably many women avoid as well. It's all about menopause. We're going to bring in pain. We're going to bring in sleep disorders. And I'm especially interested in from your perspective of introducing breathing to the patients that you're working with. So, so welcome. Whereabouts are you based? Um, Huddersfield. In, Huddersfield. In- Great. And it looks as if you have just returned from holidays with a nice tan as well. So that's always good. So a good time to catch you. Um, so, yeah. How did you get into breathing, by the way? Well, the, um, it was very, very bizarre. If you want the complete honest answer, um, I was we have an appraisal once a year as part of an NHS doctor, and you've got to choose um, something to learn about that you not don't know so much about. Um, and normally I plan it. I'm quite organised, and that particular year I hadn't, and I knew all the things I didn't want to talk about. Um, and I just it just came out of my said mindfulness. I, I don't know anything about it. I've had it, I think it's meant to be good. Try to suggest it to patients and they could see right through me that I didn't know anything or didn't know enough to make it sound attractive to them. Um, so the lady, uh, my appraiser said, fine, that's great, go on that journey. And then I've had this most bizarre journey where, you know, the next week I got an email to say, is a mindfulness for GPs course, I went on that. They suggest read this, read this book, read that book. It had a CD in it. Um, about meditation and I've just gone on this really sort of unplanned unstructured journey and um, and I think that the thing that really struck me was the neuroscience of it how we can change our body um, and I think at that point I was really quite disillusioned that the patients that I was trying to help at um, traditional medicine runs out of options for um, we have a lot of complex patients with multi multi uh, morbidity you know lots of diseases lots of medication and I sort of felt my my the reason why I became a doctor was to help people and um, didn't really feel I was sort of, sort of helping people anymore and then um, ended up doing a lot of learning about neuroscience then decided to do a therapeutic life coaching course and it was in that that she linked she uh, talked about the autonomic nervous system and linked breathing to that um then did a bit of experimentation uh, on myself and then had a profound moment with a patient in a coil fitting that just was like I've, I've got to train to be a breathing practitioner because there is something that is so important about this and we would love to see the science meeting breathing I think it's got an, a, an enormous potential um sometimes breathing is seen a little bit too over here yeah and it can be tremendous. I know the science can be a little bit limited. The research can be limited, but we do the best that we can do. Bring the physiology to breathing. And in this instance, you're working with different patients and you spoke about working with people with chronic pain. Um, culminated with that is going to be chronic fatigue syndrome, obstructive sleep apnea. But returning back to the, the females. So how did you hone in on this? Well, the, um, I was really, really lucky at the beginning of my career. Um, you could apply at that point to do an extra six months of training um, with a bit of an interest. So I asked, I applied, was successful and um, chose women's health. Um, so at that point, I was trained to fit coils and implants for contraception. You can use it as part of HRT as well, the coil, well, one of the coils. Um, and naturally, that was sort of like over 20 years ago. Um, naturally then I've, I've followed women throughout my career because I'm running clinics doing these things and naturally I've got to keep up to date with contraception and HRT 
Um, and the things that I've learned about women over that 20 years is we're all different. Um, the way we respond to, um, to different parts of our reproductive life is different. You know, I have some people who don't even notice they go through the menopause and some people have a terrible time. Um, actually, our bodies change. So what suited us maybe when we were younger and what we what suits us now completely change. So it is, you know, it, 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 we are a diverse bunch um and certainly the I really felt there was like a missing piece with menopause that I, I, I try to help people with HRT and, and looking at other lifestyle things but they definitely felt there was a missing piece mm-hmm. and then with the breathing work and, and what I learned from you um started to look at this this steep rise in sleep disorder breathing as, as people go through the perimenopause and menopause and then actually asking women, you know, how are you sleeping? Um, which I probably would have asked anyway. But then I asked the next question, um, how do you breathe at night? And obviously, sometimes they're like, mm, I, I sometimes signposted, I'm going to ask you, say it seems a bit unusual. Um, you know, and like, is your mouth open? Have you started snoring? And um, does your partner, if you've got a sleeping partner, do they ever have to nudge you because you've stopped breathing? And I, I've been absolutely, um, well, it, um, amazed at how many women don't breathe well at night uh, so many it's untrue now obviously I see a skewed view I'm seeing women who are obviously struggling for some reason I appreciate there's lots of women who are looking at oh who perhaps are, are doing okay and so I definitely uh, you know the the more people that I see are going to have higher risk of it I get that um but it's it you know and, and then the work that I do as a breathing practitioner actually helping someone to stop snoring or um I've, I've had individuals that haven't been diagnosed with sleep apnea but they're certainly their partner's been saying they've been having gaps in breathing and then they re-educate their body and then their gaps stop and they sleep really well so this is not fixed and certainly what I think the NHS can offer is limited um definitely limited um and I think it's trying to get that message out there you know, I sort of promote this sort of like three A's approach. So aware, um, assess and action. So first of all, you know, I want women to be aware that how we breathe matters. And in particular, how we breathe when we're asleep absolutely matters for health and well-being. Um, And then obviously um, trying to sort of suggest how they can sort of assess themselves to work out if they've got efficient breathing or not. And then obviously if they're ready and willing to, to give it a go, then they, they, you know, they can give themselves the action part and actually try and change things. So peri, perimenopause, um, it can affect different females. It can, it can come in quite early. Yeah. Will you just go through a little bit of say the transition into perimenopause there's maybe do does a female are they vulnerable to different symptoms menopause um just to break it down for say somebody who may have no information what is menopause yeah so i mean essentially it's when um we we go from our reproductive life when our body is essentially primed to potentially have children and and some women may choose to have children or not or they they may want to have children and not able to but our, our body goes from being able to reproduce and, and potentially um, become pregnant and then to a part of our life when 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 we're not. Um, the actual definition of the menopause is when you've gone um, a year since your last natural period um, and then it's sort of like the post-menopause um, phase of your life. Um, and the, the, the period of time where things start to change is the, the perimenopause. So that's when our hormones start to fluctuate, change, and we get this decline, this uh, reduction in the amount of female hormones that we have. Um, and, and that that can um, be very short, but in a lot of women, it, it can be a number of years. Um, and the difficulty in the perimenopause is we have huge swings of hormones. So it's not just a steady decline. You know, someday you can have a really high estrogen level and then it can crash and and women can that can be really destabilizing um for an individual um and one um yeah and one one common thing that i don't think 
women realise is um, hormones affect how we breathe. So um, again, there's not enough research in it. And I hope at some point there's going to be more. But we've got, you know, testosterone, progesterone, estrogen receptors in our lungs, in our in our brain, in the part, particularly in the parts of the brain that control breathing. Um, so it's it's really important. Uh, and how how those hormones change and how it affects breathing and does actually matter. Um, so um, and one thing that I think some women don't realize is the hormone progesterone. So that's one of our female hormones. If it's a synthetic hormone, we call it a progestogen. Um, but actually that, that stimulates, um, that makes us breathe faster. Um, and, it, and also it's thought to have some, some um, aspect of increasing the, um, the strength of the, the throat at the back. Mm. And then mm. as, we, as we sort of transition through and lose that, then potentially that, that airway is more likely to collapse, which obviously impacts sleep disordered breathing. Mm. Um, and this so is complex. Sorry to cut across you. This is kind of different implications. So if you have a, a female going through um monthly cycle mm. and at different phases, there's going to be an increase in progesterone, which is going to stimulate her breathing, which can bring on symptoms that can be contributed to or made worse by her breathing pattern during that time. And exactly. then the remarkable thing, as you, you spoke about, is that progesterone seems to protect females against obstructive sleep apnea. Yeah. So when progesterone production levels off, then the, the female, of course, is more vulnerable to the upper airway collapsing during sleep. Yeah. And of course, this could be made worse by body fat distribution as well. We're putting fat on the uh, both male and females, fat in the belly. We've got increased fat deposits in the throat. We've got increased fat deposits in the tongue. It, it's really interesting, that whole transition. Uh, menopause seems to be coming on the radar. Like, I probably wouldn't have given the word any consideration up until about two years ago. And now it seems to be falling all over the place. It's, we're hearing it over and over. Um, so do you, th you think there's a greater awareness? Coming back to those three A's, but there is a lack of awareness of the connection between breathing and dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system and menopause. You think something is happening now? People are starting to to take note. Definitely. So, I mean, I've been on a roller coaster with HRT because when I first started, obviously, I developed this interest in women's health, and I was really upskilling my knowledge on HRT. Did a project on it as part of my uh, training, and then the um, a, a study came out, and the study that changed everything that made. Um, that made everyone not want to have HRT came out literally as I was qualifying as a GP and um, and that completely changed um, the radar now that that study there was lots of um, technical problems with it so um, actually um, it, it, I won't go into it but 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 yeah so essentially I was prescribing lots of HRT then in the middle of my career done hardly any prescribing of HRT and that data has been looked at again um, and obviously highlighted the, the limitations of that study. And also now we've got hormones that are much more, we, we now understand how to prescribe it differently. So it's much more natural for the body and um, we can prescribe in a way that doesn't increase the risk of heart attack and stroke, uh, really minimizes um, breast cancer risk. So, um, so, so now that's, so I'm now prescribing lots more HRT um, to help women. Um, I do also think, now this is my personal opinion, this is not, um, you know, I'm going to give you a paper on it. My personal opinion, and I've observed people over 20 years, um, in particular women, is, um, the, and I've heard you talk about this, the amount of stress that people's got is just going up and up and up. Um, and I do think that uh, mask wearing over COVID, um, now, I know I wasn't so with the difference between nasal and mouth breathing perhaps pre-COVID but I definitely think we've got so many more mouth breathers now because we've spent a lot of time in masks coupled with just increasing stress levels just generally living in modern day society yeah, and I think that is yeah. making the menopause transition more difficult and that's my personal opinion. But. So there's a stress implication. If a female is more stress pre going into it, then it, she may have she may feel different effects. Uh, just coming back to the mask thing, I found I thought that was interesting. I wrote well, what I wrote about, but I was getting my hair cut in Limerick, which is a city south of here, and uh, Barbara had a mask on. We, we were all wearing masks, of course, and he was the guy was only in his twenties, and I was listening to him breathe, and he was mouth breathing, but he was hyperventilating. 
And of course, he's wearing a mask. He's feeling air hunger due to the pooling of carbon dioxide. And he's naturally responding with faster and harder breathing without realizing that the air hunger is actually okay if you transition to nose breathing to slow breathing. So there would have been a lot of vulnerable people when they wore the mask that, that the mask would have triggered air hunger. And without them having the knowledge, they would have automatically went into faster and harder breathing, which is going to contribute to a fight or flight response. And then you combine that with the social isolation and the fear of it. You know, the fear of walking down to the shop and not knowing if you're going to pick up something. Um, So I would agree. And then you throw in Internet, mobile phone technology. (laughs) Doesn't that matter either, you know, that's why live out in nature and get away from the whole lot. It could be very very important and pretty much accessible to most people. If you get a, if you have a car, you can get out 10 miles outside of your city, get out into a water, something like that. So coming back to this, um, Louise, when you're working with people then with postmenopause, do you notice a pattern? And I know it can't be a hundred percent, but do you notice breathing patterns that how does that person breathe? If you were to compare their breathing to your breathing and you're just kind of observing their breath, is there any pattern there? Um, def- definitely the um, the more well, what I found is the, the women that struggle more uh, with with transitioning tra- transitioning through um, have a definitely a higher chance of not breathing efficiently. Um, so tend to be more um, open mouth breathing, fast upper chest breathing, um, maybe some breath holding sort of on the inhale you know, that that type of thing. Um, and then when you ask about how they breathe at night, that would be a common thing. Um, I do think, um, I think it, it, it's challenging for a woman's body, particularly, I think as well, um, I think why why women perhaps find it more difficult now is than perhaps in the past is there's a lot more demands on women, you know, um, perhaps working parents, you know, people are living longer. Some might have elderly parents um, to look after. They may have had children later. So they've now perhaps got teenage children as they're in this um, transition period in their life. So all these things just add up on that stress. And I think there's definitely, um, I think, there's this concept with women that you just got to keep pushing through, you know, if something's difficult, just keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing and not actually like, hang on a minute here. Let's just take a moment and actually look at the bigger picture. And I, I, I've come to the conclusion that again, this is my own way. I talk to people. It's like, I think it's perfectly possible to thrive through the perimenopause and menopause. I think it is, it's difficult, but I think you need to step back and you need to see this, um, this time of your life as um, it's a jigsaw puzzle. And there's lots of different pieces in that jigsaw puzzle. Um, like I'll mention some now, but there's loads. So, you know, what we eat, when we eat, what we drink, um, managing stress, sleep, breathing, um, the um, being creative, having fun, sense of purpose, connection with others, you know, uh, resistance training, spirituality, sexuality, um, car activities, um, lots and lots of different pieces. And sometimes if you look look at it, all of it, it seems overwhelming. Um, so what I sort of say is, well, pick, be honest with yourself, try and pick a couple of pieces that you think you've got the most to gain from. Because some women literally can feel like they've just had the plug taken from them and it's like they've just everything, just they've got nothing left to give. Um, so, this so is when of, they go through it, is it again? So, when they're going through it, they feel that the, the plug is pulled. But what symptoms might a person experience? There's so many different symptoms. Um, so I am um, I I am quite happy to say I I went through my perimenopause and it wasn't until I got my fourth symptom whilst I, I I was running and thought, oh no, this is the perimenopause, so I missed it. And it can it can really creep up on you. And there's some obviously mo- a lot of people will know, um, you know, hot, uh, having your hot sweats, your 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 your, your, your night sweats at night. So a lot of people know that. Um, um, I think the, there's more recognition now that you've got um, mood changes. Anxiety can be worse. Um, the obviously genital symptoms. There can be a lot of dryness um, in the vagina, which makes uh, intimacy difficult. Um, but there's, there's other things. So I got I got hoarse voice. I got dry skin and joint pain. I mean, joint pain's fairly um, a lot of people know that. But the hoarse voice, I completely. I just thought I was talking a lot at work. 
um and the dry skin i just well again it this is this is this takes us back to what i'm saying is that women um certainly i was just pushing completely pushing forward not paying any attention to my body that well i've got dry skin now and no matter how much moisturizer i put on it's not helping i've got hoarse voice i'm having to go off and check that i've not got throat cancer my gp had to refer and luckily i didn't um, and then I'm, I'm now like walking like an old woman when I'm trying to run. Um, and I started snoring. So started... I started to snore. Snore. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So I started yeah. to snore. And then when, so when I was, um, I, I think, I think it was when I was, so I think I must have snored um, dry mouth, dry skin. Uh, so dry. So I got the hoarse voice, dry skin um, and snoring. And I didn't put that any, didn't really. Pay, think didn't think perimenopause and then when I was running and I was getting joint pain I, that was when the penny dropped um and I, I went for me um hormones was a big part of my jigsaw I went on HRT and instantly my throat wasn't my, my voice was normal uh, my dry skin just instantly went and um um and uh, my joint pain went and I could wow. run normally but my sto- my snoring did not stop I was still snoring and that that didn't and the and I know how I felt when I was um, snoring, you know, I um, couldn't concentrate. So, you know, brain fog, I was trying to be professional at work and struggling with my memory. Um, obviously, I'm then going to be more irritable because I've not slept well. My, my husband who's next to me, he's not going to be, he's going to be more irritable because I've disturbed his sleep. And then you might end up in separate bedrooms. And, and so all that, mm-hmm. so I know exactly how it feels. And then when I was, obviously I was already on this breathing journey and then thought, right, well, you know, well, let's invest some time in improving my breathing. And then literally I don't snore. I sleep the best I've ever have done, um, you know, have clarity of thought. And then this ability to um, self-manage my autonomic nervous system to self-manage my stress levels has been amazing. Um, And then obviously now I run completely with nasal breathing. So it's, um, which is just so much more relaxing and I can recover much easier. So um, hence why I'm very, very passionate for uh, trying to, because when you've been there yourself and you know, you can, I'm quite happy to tell that to people and like, you know, I know what it feels like and you can, I might not make, not everyone can stop snoring because it depends on the size of the nasal cavity, doesn't it? But, but you can certainly make it a lot better um so I think it's really important that women um know about breathing but for me definitely sleep disorder breathing um and and how you breathe when you're asleep really is your unconscious breathing pattern isn't it so if you don't breathe well at night you clearly are not breathing well in the day yeah it's amazing with um with obstructive sleep apnea with females I think it increases 200 to 300 percent you know I think it sometimes the, the problem with sleep apnea that the studies vary so much and yeah. you read one study and it, it gives you a statistics of male females. And then you re- read another study and it's way off the charts. And um, the one that stays in my head is 10% of females under 50 years of age and postmenopause, depending, it's very difficult to categorize the age. It can happen typically between 50 and 55, is it? It's, no, it's, it, 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 no, no I, th- no, I think you're right. Um, the um, But I, I've looked exactly like you. I'm confused now because you look at so many different studies mm. and the, the widely vary um but it's huge huge amounts of of women that it affects yeah. and i you know you could say well that's in a paper but i'm asking my the people that i work with or well obviously the people that see me privately already have no they're coming to me because they know that they want to improve their breathing but obviously i see a huge spectrum of people at the surgery but the amount of people there that have sleep disorder breathing male and females it's really um, you know there's a study in the lancet was published about only about five years ago one billion people worldwide so mm. yeah out of 7.3 so one billion it's absolutely phenomenal and it's increasing and yeah, it's increasing due to a number of things and i think stress does play a role like i've often wondered why people with ptsd are more prone to obstructive sleep apnea you know like what's that connection there because you would think that obstructive sleep apnea, okay, primarily was an anatomical problem, but there's obviously other factors that are, are coming into play. Um, so coming back to the females then, post-menopause, their susceptibility to obstructive sleep apnea, it can increase 200 to 300% to about 30% of that group. You were talking about breathing exercise, and I think it's really important to qual- qualify um, what breathing exercise you were doing, because 
breathing exercise are a bit like physical exercise. You can go for a walk, you can do a sprint, you can do weights, you can do any sort of. Um, so specifically, what did you feel was good and what was the purpose? You were talking about the autonomic nervous system. So your goal was to have to bring balance. And I'm sure you did other things than breathing, but breathing was one of them. And what breathing exercise did you do? Well, I think the the the, the big, um, I've had a couple of aha moments in my career. So definitely that aha moment of, oh, you're meant to actually breathe through your nose all the time. Like, otherwise, if you breathe through your mouth, you're just dragging in dirt, muck, virus, bacteria, and then cold, dry air that actually triggers the cough reflex and, and and spasm of the breathing tube so wheezing and asthmatic that was an aha moment for me so um so I think that was definitely an aha moment and and I think it's 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 realizing the other moment is we all breathing is we do it automatically generally but it doesn't mean it's automatically efficient and that definitely um I wasn't aware of that as a medic and um, everything that I, I learned with you and I've learned subsequently, um, to be honest, I have been taught it generally, but it's that, it's that practical application, you know, so I've taught all the functions of the nose, but I just needed to be told one thing. So use it to blooming breathe, you know, you know, we'd love to see, it being, no we'd problem. love to see breathing coming into medical college. You know, I think even just for doctors to be able to self-regulate, like a highly, <laughs> A highly stressful job regardless irrespective of training um and so i'm assuming that some of the breathing exercise that you are practicing to self-regulate just involves simply slowing down everything yeah yeah taking that soft breath in through the nose and a really gentle relaxed and slow breath out and even just softening the breath ideally of course with a feeling of relaxation but okay but just gently softening the breath to the point that you get that tolerable air hunger and sustaining yeah. it then for a period of time, maybe starting off at a minute, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes. Um, yeah. That's my favorite breathing exercise, by the way. Nobody knows you're even doing it. And I think that's that's one of the powers of it. But you'd often feel that that's really what the body, if, if the body is going through a transition that's stressful, we need to yeah. be able to help counter that. So, and okay. if poor breathing is part of that, we want to be doing the opposite. Did you practice it? Did you bring it into it? Because you were fit anyway. That's another thing. You were fit, you were healthy going into this journey. And, and yet the, you still had the symptoms. Well, exactly. And when when I when I first thought, well, there's nothing wrong with my breathing. Like, why why would why would I have to like re-educate myself to breathe? Well, there's nothing wrong with my breathing. I run three times a week, I've got a healthy weight. But then but then I read the definition of sleep disorder breathing, which obviously is if you snore. So I clearly have sleep disorder breathing. So there is an issue with my breathing. And um you know, why have I got an issue with my breathing? Well, I'm going through the, the perimenopause and um, I talk a lot for my living. So that definitely makes, um, and I've got a job, job that's really stressful um, and I'm going through the perimenopause. So I've got, um, so I've got factors there that influence it. And I think that the most, I think the most, well, one important thing women should be able to think about is we've all got different efficiencies of breathing. So, you know, I, I wasn't, my breathing wasn't good, but it, but I've certainly seen individuals where it's a lot um, really, really inefficient. So I wasn't out, you know, so there's a scale of, you know, you can have efficient breathing, really very inefficient breathing, or you can be in between. And I have some patients at the surgery that, um, you know, a common one would be, um, I've got a cough, you know, I can't get rid of the cough. I do all the traditional medical stuff, you know, checking for various things. Generally it involves sending them off for a chest X-ray. So I'll say to them, what you know you, you're going to wait for your chest x-ray now can you just observe your breathing over the next week or two are you breathing through your nose when you're awake asleep and moving and if you're not could you just um give it a go of trying to breathe through the nose um and a, and a brief explanation about air hunger and you know if they feel air hunger it's not their oxygen dropping um and it's amazing how many then and i, I generally then cite if if it if they sort of look like oh Oh, I may be more of a mouth breather. I'm doing a lot of mouth breathing. I'll give them a podcast. So the one you did with um, Dr. Chatterjee or James Nestor, um, those two podcasts I have on a Word document. I can just literally just text them the link and say, you know, just observe your breathing. If you're noticing you're doing some mouth breathing, could you have a listen to this podcast? So it's just, it's, you know, is it relevant for them? If it is relevant for them, 
listen to this podcast and did you know that if you mouth breathe you'll breathe cold dry air in and it will give you a cough um so let's you know out of interest while we're doing this traditional medical thing let's see and the amount that come back like my cough's gone or it's like 99 percent gone or something mm-hmm. um and then then you're you know then i can in my nhs work i can't do like full-on breathing re- re-education so it's a lot of signposting a lot of your books get signposted so um you know depending on what their symptom is i'll i'll suggest one of your books to to practice the exercises um and i've developed on my web page again partly because of the patients i can't do really in-depth work with them but i've broken it down because i think what the the need to understand it's obviously about making sure they're not over breathing so doing breathing exercises to train their body to not over breathe um and if, if it's an nhs patient i'll i'll say one of your books so you know like sleep if it's if they've got snoring it's they sleep with buteco um if they've got asthma or nasal congestion it'll be close your mouth if it's more a stress thing it'll be atomic focus so so i'll say you can teach yourself those exercises in that book and then i've got the other bit where i'm talking about the tongue position nasal breathing um I quite like the Vic Veer throat exercise video. Um, so he's an ENT consultant, and mm. he's got some, um, he's got some um, exercises that he's picked out that he says um, he's found some evidence for in papers. Um, and I say, you know, why don't you practice some throat exercises every day? Um, and I put a bit of the science on the page as well. So what's your, what's your web page, by the way? So um, I'll, <laughs> I'll, it's very very long. So uh, I'll. I can message it to you, but if if people Google Doctor Doctor Louise Oliver Menopause, they'll get my web uh, website. And um, but I'll, I'll I'll give it. To, it's pretty easy to put in the. We we'll put um, it into the footnotes. Yeah, because it's it's got podcast information at the end, and it's a really long uh, web address. Um, but I've I've just tried to make it easy so my colleagues can share it, and just so it, it if a patient's interested, it, there's a lot of information on it, but it. But it's trying to set out that it's it's about the breathing volume, but it's also about um, making sure that airway is open and obviously getting the mouth closed at night as well. Because I can't spend a really long time with the NHS patients, um, and those that are motivated, um, they they have improved. But obviously, those that are very inefficient at breathing, um, it is very difficult to do it on their own because it you really. Yeah, you, they need to be handheld. Quite uncomfortable initially. Yeah, yeah, and you, you know what? People. Even with the more yeah. vulnerable people, and they were yeah. people that say somebody coming in with chronic fatigue syndrome, mm-hmm. and needing to realize that their autonomic nervous system is very taxed. And I've made mistakes in the past. I gave exercises that were a little bit too strong for the people. I completely floored them, and we really have to dial it back. And I think even just giving the person instruction. Do your best to maintain nose breathing during rest, especially when you go for a walk during sleep. Um, if you're feeling stressed, really focus on slowing down the speed of the exhalation, having the tongue resting up the roof of the mouth. And maybe just in your living room in the evening, you might be having some downtime. Just put one hand on your chest, one hand just above your navel and start practicing slowing down your body because when we have that soft breath in, the really relaxed, slower, gentle breath out, the body is telling the brain that everything is okay. And I think people get it because they realize whenever we get stressed, our breathing is a bit all over the place. When we and we when we start breathing faster and harder and we're irregular breathing, our mind is all over the place. So there's a connection between the breath and the mind and vice versa. Um, it, you are limited, really, isn't it? In terms of a, a GP working with patients, you've got 15 minutes and it's it's difficult to go to give that in-depth exploration. But at the same time, 15 minutes you can impart some information that can be very helpful for people yeah do you, do you well, see people coming back with reduced end symptoms say the menopause hot flashes for example yeah um de- definitely um i mean dif- um the one the one the one part that um well there's, there's all sorts of patients that um there's all sorts of um well i suppose this is this is this is with my private, I'm, I'm trying to separate my NHS work and my private clients. I mean, I've had all sorts, and it's difficult because they all get mixed into one. Um, but it, it's a, it is amazing how many different sim, uh, different symptoms improve when you improve your breathing. Um, I tend to promote, you know, um, you you you. I can quite confidently say, you know, you'll be able to um, you'll be less breathless with exercise. You'll um, you'll sleep better if um, obviously the 
they don't breathe well when they're asleep and you'll have an a, a improved ability to self-regulate you know stress and, and stress resilience so I generally come from there but there are lots of symptoms so I've had uh, people who their eustachian tube you know when they, they get a lot of um they have problems with uh, like ear pain and things so I've had people with that I've had someone on my current course her volume of her tinnitus has massively gone down um uh what one of the patients this is the patient from um from the surgery so again she mentioned she was snoring and I just did I did my usual thing of mentioning the importance of the nose um and I, I sometimes I sometimes put an oxygen saturation probe on their finger because some people even just shutting their mouth they get air hunger and it can be really powerful you can just put it on and just say right just close your mouth I just want to just see if you can breathe out your nose for a minute let's just see and you can sort of see if they're getting in their eyes can't you if they're getting like air hungry, you say, look, 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 it's fine. The oxygen mm. levels are absolutely fine. This is the carbon dioxide here. It's gone up. You can retrain this. And um, I quite like telling them, I don't know if you know this, but Kate Winslet um, in her last film, Avatar, she's the same age as me. Um, she was offered, uh, there was a free diving sequence in it and was obviously offered a stunt double. And she said, no, thank you. Train me to free dive. So obviously she was trained by a professional. Um, clearly, you can't do that without being trained properly, otherwise you, you risk death. Um, but she did a seven minute breath hold and beat Tom Cruise, apparently. So that story goes down quite nicely because I say, you know, she's the same age. You know, she's a, a in her late 40s um, who, um, you know, has trained her body. Obviously, it was part of her occupation, but you can train your body to be less sensitive so the buildup of carbon dioxide and the benefits from that are huge. Um, you don't have to go down the free diving route, obviously, and uh, say to them, but um, if they don't want to, uh, but it's just getting, but that that's something that's quite easy. Um, you know, you put the SATs probe in that, and I find that really powerful because they notice then, well, my oxygen level didn't drop, but I'm feeling like I'm suffocated. Then they mm. know they get mm. the carbon dioxide in a real practical way. Um so that's been really helpful. I think and it's had... really important to do that because I think, especially if you if we have somebody say coming in that's vulnerable to panic or anxiety, oftentimes air hunger, well, they will call it suffocation and they are terrified of it. Yeah. And the, the air hunger is driven by an accumulation of carbon dioxide. But just for some of us, we're overly sensitive to the accumulation of the gas. And that's why it's very important to do gentle breathing exercises that over time that you can desensitize your reaction to it. Because... I often feel it's the suffocation that's driving back into the stress response that's feeding into the suffocation. There's a vicious circle, there's a vicious circle there. Um, so imparting that advice in, in terms of for people to feel comfortable that, yeah, a little bit of air hung. I wonder, we had a question there come up yesterday as well. I probably won't go down, this, go down a rabbit hole. We'll stay on topic. But uh, yeah, sorry, Louise, I kicked in there. Um so your patients overall, and you find that they're fairly, they're, well, not everybody is going to be approachable about breathing, but I think breathing has got a tremendous space in terms of getting it out to the very everyday person with the language that we use and bringing it down to their level because it is very accessible. You know, Absolutely. it's it's tremendously, like even go for a walk with your mouth closed, you are doing a breathing exercise per se. Um, where do you and see think, it going? Well, I, I think, I think, health professionals um I, I, they need to know about it you know this is not um there, there is nothing weird about um buteco or breathing through your nose or training people to breathe well there's nothing weird about it we have been designed you know to the to breathe through the nose um that that's how we've been designed to breathe it's just that we're not doing it um and the, the science is there you know it's just it's just getting that across the practical application of it. So I think health professionals um, need to be aware of the importance of breathing through the nose and encouraging people to breathe light and breathe uh, low and slow, uh, definitely. Um, I think the, I mean, we know this, but I'll just say, we, you know, to breathe well, you need those three things, don't you? You need um, the, the biochemistry breathe light, so you need to not be sensitive to the build up of carbon dioxide. You need to breathe low with the diaphragm, the correct using the correct muscles, um, and breathe slow, um, which is all to do with the sort of physiology and the psychology of it. But the trouble is, 
it's it's much easier and I fell in this hole before I sort of started my breathing training is it's so much easier to tell a patient oh I want you to breathe at six breaths per minute using your diaphragm so I did that yeah so I'm only focusing on biomechanics and the, the slow breathing and um so I'm saying and then some of them it worked really well and some of them I made them feel awful and it wasn't until then I realized that it's because we have this spectrum of breathing inefficiency and those that are really sensitive to the buildup of carbon dioxide um, cannot tolerate breathing at six breaths per minute. And the only way they can do that is to overbreathe, you know, mouth open, massive breath in and out. And you essentially make them hyperventilate and make them worse. Um, and I, you know, because I spend because I spend time fitting the coils with women I'm with them for a long time and you know it's an attractive prospect to use breathing to try and help their pain so obviously I experimented with some of this and some women had a very profound moment um which I um I I that I made her into a very relaxed state which I she has given me permission to talk about it anonymously if you want me to go into that but I changed her very profoundly and it was that moment that I thought right I want to train as a breathing practitioner but then I've done that with other patients and it, I've made them feel terrible. And that missing link is definitely about carbon dioxide sensitivity. But that is the bit that is the more the most difficult one to teach. And it is more difficult. Um, obviously, if someone isn't too inefficient, exactly what you said, just, you know, go for your walk, make sure it's nasal breathing when you sit down. Exactly. But I've got individuals that are coming out of long COVID clinics that have control pause of three and a half seconds being yeah. discharged, saying there's nothing we can do for you. Um, we've done everything. That's it. You'll just have to pace yourself and just get on with it. And these people are so there's one aspect of their breathing that, that is not being addressed. And that may not be. This is my experience of the clinics near me. Um, I fully admit around the world and different parts of the UK that may be different. Um, and um, yeah. I know there are. Well, I've seen it as well on COVID before. I would coming back to that breathing point. I would totally agree with you. Um, giving people instructions maybe to breathe in for four seconds and out for six. Theoretically, it's a great instruction because mm. it's the perfect respiratory rate to bring down the breathing rate down to say six breaths per minute, which perhaps yeah. to balance the autonomic nervous system. But if we think of the person who needs it most, the person who is breathing faster with a respiratory rate of maybe 18 breaths per minute, breathing up her chest, uh, feeling air hunger. So here's the person in their everyday breathing. This is how they breathe, not just during a stressful situation. And then we asked them, if we were to ask them to go from 18 down to six, the transition is just too much. And they will just amplify the tidal volume. So even though they are reducing the respiratory rate, the volume of air that they breathe in during that breath is going to be increasing disproportionately. So they end up over breathing, which is going to feed into their symptoms. Um, it's a great point. And I think that's the importance of being able to tailor breathing exercise then according to the person that you're working with. Yeah, d- definitely. Um, and and it is I think teaching carbon dioxide teaching individuals to be less sensitive to the buildup of carbon dioxide has, has been profound for me because it I now, you know, I can help people feel, or at least help their basic foundation of life breathing to be better, to not feel this horrible air hunger. Um, and the people just breathe then naturally, even if you don't do any work on diaphragm and um, breathing slow, they naturally, you're asking them to nasal breathe become less sensitive to the build of the carbon dioxide. They breathe slower anyway and lower. Um, and then your, your natural, you know, I remember the moment when I corrected my breathing and, and like we described that you you get this point where you you're, there's a short pause after the exhale before you breathe in again. And I remember being at rest and thinking, oh, I've got that. That's, I don't, I don't feel this drive to breathe in. And then when you, you're at rest and I'm on the computer on my own or chopping veg, breathing like that it just your just natural breathing pattern is really soothing um completely soothing and then you you're less reactive then to um i would love to do a study and this is my um personal thing i would love to do a study on someone's brain um before they do breathing re-education and afterwards and i would love to know what happens to the size of the amygdala so that's that part of that brain that's 
that has part of a role of fear. Because I know from reading a book about meditation, you do meditation and it makes it smaller. So if I train my breathing to be really slow, gentle, and it's constantly stimulating that parasympathetic and I'm feeling calmer all the time, surely my amygdala's got smaller. And I definitely, you know, I had, I've, you know, I've been known for my fiery sort of um, personality. I'm, I'm, I'm probably more an extrovert, um, but I'm definitely calmer. I'm definitely less reactive. Um, and it's a physiological thing. Definitely. And I would love to know what the size of my amygdala was before I started this and afterwards. Um, mm, so if there's anyone listening who's going to fund a study, I think that yeah, would be... It's, uh, it's re- like we'd love to see more studies on, on breathing, but specifically the breathing exercise that we work with that we're seeing the results with. Uh, you know, Michael Binder's paper, The Neuronal Hyperexcitability Hypothesis. So he's a psychiatrist in one of the universities in the United States. He said the psychiatric population, um, if you were to add up those with severely elevated hyperexcitability of their brain cells and, and severely, it was almost three quarters. Whereas in the normal general population, if you were adding that cohort, I think it was only about, God, it was only, it wasn't even a quarter, maybe about 15% or so. And then we look at the connection between what happens if we are breathing harder and faster And we're breathing a little bit too much air and that's blowing off too much carbon dioxide. That in turn will increase neuronal excitability. And then we know that 75%, even though it's understudied, 75% in the studied population of anxiety and panic disorder have dysfunctional breathing. And then we have to ask is, well, is their everyday breathing then feeding into increased neuronal excitability? So the brain cells are firing all over the place. They are all over the place. Um, yeah, this is uh, this is an interest because I often feel with mindfulness. Can you imagine if our minds are all over the place and then somebody says, says start paying attention to present moment awareness? You're going to say, listen, it's not possible. You know, that that's it. Yeah. But you could do breathing exercises maybe to help self-regulate that even some of them don't even require paying attention to the breath. And I think it's more direct. It, it you can you can target it very specifically you know if if the elevated breathing pattern is feeding into symptoms well why not target specifically the elevated breathing pattern but also take into consideration as what you said earlier on that tidal volume um yeah. and just on one point about yeah. mental health um i've had two patients um recently that both have quite severe mental health one male one female but um but they their um, nightmares um both of them have lots of nightmares um i try to explore about sleep apnea with them there's no 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 i don't i don't have gaps in breathing but they but they do heavily snore um and luckily in the area that i am in i i can just refer on a suspicion i've, I've not had a referral um sent back to me and i've just said i'm i'm concerned can we just check these these people don't have sleep apnea um, and both of them have very severe, I mean, wow. really. And one of them had an AHI index of 94. I didn't realise it was possible to have. I didn't no even norm. know it was. I've never heard of one as high as that. Wow. 94. Um, and, and to me, obviously, it's on my radar. Um, but the, but it was, I had to tease out that they were snoring mm. and they definitely didn't think that they had sleep apnea. But I just said, well, can you just go, f- can I just do the referral? Because you've got nightmares and you've got snoring. And sometimes this is associated with sleep apnea. And both of them have got very severe sleep apnea. And th- um, the other thing, I think in one of those menopause studies was a lot of women tend to not come to the doctor saying they're snoring or got gaps in breathing. They're more likely to say, insomnia anxiety fatigue uh, nightmares that that those types of symptom um and i think it's trying to trying to raise aware with health health professionals that it, it's other symptoms that that present and you need to obviously you still just consider it in your differential diagnosis that it might be something that they're suffering with but for me the most important thing the most important for me about getting health professionals to understand this is to experience it themselves or to see somebody they know improve. Um, so, on, you know, on my virtual groups, it's been really good that I've had some doctors on my courses that 
um, I'm not breaking confidentiality because I've put it on social media, but they've seen they've seen individuals on the course improve um, and, and there were people that they knew. Um, and that was really powerful to mm. them. Um, you know, doctors that I work with, again, I've got a doctor that snores. And again, he's just done a little bit of work on trying to do more nasal breathing. And um, I think he did a bit of box breathing, but his snoring's gone down. Mm. And then once you experience that, you realize, and okay, yeah, there's, there's more to this. Mm. Um, so it's trying to to get, I think that's a powerful way of, of doing it, really. Mm, I totally agree. Irrespective of the science is actually mm. getting people do they feel any different i remember i was giving a talk to 150 ear nose and throat doctors in madrid back in 2019 and they were split into two the room was it wasn't able to fill but it wasn't didn't have that capacity so 75 come in on one day and 75 come in the other day and okay here i am fretting ent's i better start really go down the whole science route so that's why I did on day one. And, and it's limited. You know, the science is not so black and white either. There's some gray areas there. And then on the second day, I did a, a combination of physical exercises, doing the nose and blocking and the science. And then the feedback come back. And they rather, the feedback was so much better on the second day. Um, yeah. But I remember the ear, nose and throat doctors. I had them breathe in, breathe out, hold their nose and do the nose and blocking exercise. And I was looking out into the audience and some of them started looking at each other after the exercise, knowing that, wow, I feel some difference to my nose. And these are ear, nose and throat doctors, you know, that kind of way. So I thought that was cool. Um, yeah, it's the experience is really, really key because I just feel that breathing has been let down for so many decades. And, yeah. you know, I think we we need again to bring it. It's really right down the center. You know, there's nothing left of field about it. It, this isn't alternative. This is a perfect complementary adjunct that can be used from people with respiratory and mental health issues and sleep. And I really like that you were working with people who were having high anxiety and high panic and you picked up on their sleep. Here's a question. Do you think that people with mental health issues will ever get to the root of their mental health issues? Now, it's going to be your personal opinion if they have continued sleep disorder breathing, but that's not being addressed. No, no. Yeah. Because when absolutely not. And I'm, I, you know, probably one of my biggest passions with breathing is sleep disorder breathing, because, it, it, you know, by definition, if you're not breathing well when you're asleep, you, that means your unconscious breathing pattern is not efficient. And you should when you're asleep, you your body should feel safe. Your body then should go into that parasympathetic, that relaxation response. Um, and then actually sleep's a very active process. Your body then repairs and recovers your body, but it won't do that if it's still in that fight flight mode. Um, and that's definitely what I bring in with, with people is, you know, you've got that autonomic nervous system that controls everything in your body and it could be in fight flight or in the, this relaxation response. Um, you know, if you're breathing at night, open mouth, loud holding your breath irregular your body literally thinks it's being attacked it's going to keep waking you up um and then you're not going to sleep well mm -hmm. and we know that you to sleep well you need this relaxation response so the body can then do the active processes of repair and recover and that's repair and recover physically but we know there's certain stages of sleep where they do all, all the emotional processing so you're not going to do that if you don't have that 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 the the correct um, stages of sleep you need all all stages of sleep are important for different reasons um so sleep disorder breathing is is so 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 important and and medics we make things so complicated don't we so you know you want to open the airway up so let's let's put a mandibular advancement device on here and drag 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 it forward to drag the tongue out of the airway well can we not have the individual practice the tongue in the correct position? Um, and certainly, you know, now I'm teaching people and I've got the experience. I can say, you know, you can train someone to put the tongue in the correct position and it stay there. It takes three months, though. And I will tell people that and say you're creating new muscles, new nerve connections. So this isn't going to be better after a week. You've got to do it. You know, every time you fill your water bottle up, you sit on the toilet, you wash your hands you put the kettle on, you just need to go tongue and it needs to be flat on the roof of your mouth, not in contact with your front teeth. Make sure your lips are sealed. Don't clench your teeth. 
slow nasal breathing. Just do that. How many times a day, if you do tongue routine like that, you're constantly bringing yourself back to nasal breathing, correct tongue position. Um, yes, it might ache. You know, you're good. I, I think it's a positive thing. I've, I'm definitely better under here and I've got more definition here since I've practiced my tongue position. Um, it will ache for a couple of weeks, but that's a good thing. That shows that you've got, you've not had the muscles there. Um, and then, mm. and then people feed back to you. Oh, I actually woke up this morning. My tongue was in the correct position. Mm. And then obviously they carry on. And after three months, it's a more natural thing. Mm. Um, but we, but you know, um, so, and I know there's some people that, um, um, obviously there's different spectrums, but they, they're even fitting this um, nerve stimulator now to the bottom of the tongue, aren't they? To fire a signal to push the tongue mm. out of the airway. But can we not, you know, can we as medics just tell people there's a correct way to 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 put the tongue there's actually a correct swallow you know there's there's lots of stuff on the internet they, you know they can it i know we're not qualified in it and i know obviously my functional therapy therapy we currently in in the uk i don't have access to that um but but patients can do a lot of reading themselves and, and teach themselves um, oh, Liz, i totally agree with you i really feel with the sleep industry and if you look at the cpap it works which is continuous positive airway pressure. And the idea came from, for, for those listeners who don't know about it, it's a vacuum cleaner in reverse, to put it crudely. So it's basically a device or a unit that's pumping air into your airway at a sufficient pressure to splint open the airway. Now, on the basis that continuous positive pressure air opens up the airway, how about looking at reducing the negative pressure created during inspiration from an anatomical point of view? But basically, that means, can we change breathing patterns that they are lighter and slower so that there's less negative pressure? Uh, you also spoke about the anatomy in terms of the tongue resting up in the roof of the mouth, breathing in through the nose, which is going to help open up the airway. And a good airway is just this side. We don't have much room for air. So you can imagine when the mouth is open or if you have jaws like mine that are set back, you know, the airway is already compromised. Um, sleep apnea has moved on luckily since 2013 there was a paper by Danny, Ak Danny Eckhart and he talked about PAM he talked about peak crit and arousal yeah. threshold um, L is for loop gain and M is for muscle recruitment so those four phenotypes and breathing can play a role there mm -hmm. and I would love to see today that mm -hmm. there's 100 people selected with established obstructive sleep apnea yeah. And let's teach this group of 100 people myofunctional therapy and breathing re-education and see what result comes out of that. Because if we look at the current treatment, which is the first line of treatment is the CPAP machine, 50% of people abandon it after one month. And if you're mouth breathing while wearing the CPAP, your adherence to the CPAP actually reduces. There's a 2004, I know it's a little bit old, 2004 paper. They looked at 70 I think it's 70 people with obstructive sleep apnea. If you had them out open, only 30 of them continued with sleep apnea at one year follow-up, but 70% of those who were nasal breathing continued. So the compliance rates are much higher with nose breathing while wearing the CPAP versus mouth breathing. And then the mandibular advancement is the second line of treatment, but it's not always easy to predict who that's going to respond with it because different phenotypes or different characteristics and then they looked at using adhesive mouth tape now surprisingly some people got worse with the taping and this was kind of news when when i was looking at us in oh uh, because we've been kind of encouraging taping as an integral part as a support for many many years and this was due to mouth puffing mm -hmm. and then i was up in my treadmill here one day and i was wondering okay what's this how do you how do you replicate mouth puffing but if you push yourself during physical exercise to a point whereby you're feeling quite breathless with sustained nasal breathing, at some point, your drive to breathe is so strong that the air has to come out through the mouth. And that's what I was thinking. OK, mouth puffing then is happening that the individual is breathing so hard and so fast, but there's so much negative pressure, a combination of their breathing, but also the anatomy that they're blowing out through the mouth. And with the taping of the mouth, then that's why we were lucky as well with just by chance um, with the myotape that it allows the mouth puffing in comparison. So what I would say is if anybody is listening, um, if you do have a severe obstructive sleep apnea or if you're quite obese, 
never put the tape right across the lips because it, it prevents mouth puffing, which could worsen your sleep apnea. But if you can have something that can help bring your lips together and being conscious of your breathing during the day, it's really interesting, isn't it? The whole sleep medicine, by the way, did that form much of your training when you were a GP Um, sleep disorders? No, 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 definitely not. I mean, that I don't, I don't remember being specifically talked about it. Um, It is interestingly one sleep study clinic letter I've seen recently actually did recommend the Vic Veer throat exercises so I did think that was oh right so we're actually thinking not just CPAP machine it was only one letter um but my experience is if um if the patients go to the clinic and they obviously get asked are you a mouth breather at night or a nasal breather and then there's no again we make medics again we're making this more complicated aren't we just oh right you're a mouth breather right you have the, the full mask rather than oh you're a mouth breather could could we convert you back to a nasal breather and then you can just have the nasal? Um, yeah. you, you know yes, what I mean? Yeah, even like and when we look at the CPAP adherence, like for it to significantly improve with nose breathing, it's well documented in obstructive sleep apnea that mouth breathing worsens, or at least those individuals who are breathing through the, an open mouth during sleep with established obstructive sleep apnea, they worsen. It would make total sense. Yeah. Breathing has kind of been a little bit overlooked. Oh, um, massive, massively, massively. Definitely. Yeah. And that would be, I would love to see today yeah. that it was, it was one of those pillars, you know, just as doctors are becoming more involved with nutrition and physical exercise and breathing should be alongside those three pillars as main pillars. And, you know, we think about breathing, we think about mental health, we think about sleep, we think about respiration. Um, it, it is, it is, it can influence all of those things in the positive. Yeah. I'm just going to come to a close because I'm conscious of time. So I think it's tremendous and brilliant as a GP that you have discovered breathing and that you're working with it and that you're educating your clients. I think it's excellent. Um, where do you think we need to go with it? If you were to look 10 years into the future and where do you think, or is it probably I'm putting you on the spot, but. I I th- I I think every health professional needs to know about it. And, and being honest, I think um, I would probably encourage every health professional to read James Nestor's Breathe book. Mm. Really simple, or at least um, listen. Um, I think I think the the book's really good because I think it, it's coming at it from someone who you know me and you uh, invested in. Mm. Going to say it's important, but he's a scientific journalist who's come at it uh, again, not a planned thing. I don't think uh, triggered by. I think I heard him say on a, um, a free diving um, uh, piece he had to do. So I would actually encourage every health professional to read that. And I don't, um, and what's in that book is true. What's in that book is true. Um, and that's the first basic thing. And then start to experiment with, with, their bo- with their body themselves and see what happens and actually start observing your patients before you pull them in you know, is their mouth open? Can you hear them breathing as they come in? What are they breathing like in front of you? And certainly the health professionals who I've been working with, they now see it in their patients and they're asking them particularly how they're sleeping at night. So, um, and I think, being honest, I don't think, who's going to fund a massive study on breathing? You know, it won't Mm. be a drug company, will it? You know, um, so yeah, I don't, I would would love, the, the first thing I'd like people to be, coding on the computer dysfunctional breathing um i have asked for a code i'm certainly not convinced it's been um been i can't get it on my computer so that's one of the issues we've got patrick is if i recognize dysfunctional breathing in a patient on a primary on my primary care system i can't code it so obviously then the nhs doesn't see that it's rising so yeah, first of all, I need a code on the computer. I then need health professionals to code it when they think it's relevant. Then the NHS will see there's a steep rise in it. And then perhaps some money will get invested in it. Um, so, um, but yes, but I would love obviously lots of research into it. And particularly the research, particularly with women, it, it I think any research papers have to do three things one we have to recognize that women breathe differently at different points in their cycle and reproductive life that alters things um there's different efficiencies of breathing so depending on how efficient your breathing is will alter results um and the third uh, the other thing is uh, actually the time of day um alters how you breathe because you're 
less sensitive to the buildup of carbon dioxide later on in the day. So if you're doing studies and you, you don't take that into account, your results are going to be affected by that. So, it, um, yeah. Yeah, I agree with all those points. Um, we definitely need to see um, the changes in terms of how women, females breathe differently to men. It's been known since 2015. Oh, sorry, it's been known since 1915. Um, and there was kind of a handful of studies here and then. So even though it's going back over 100 years, it was overlooked. And most, most research on, on breathing has been done on men. And even when it was done on women, they failed to take into consideration the monthly cycle. Um, so it, it does need to get to that detail. So, Dr. Louise Oliver, that was a pleasure. Thanks very much for this conversation. I think it's going to help people. I think it's great to get this information out there. Um, so, so, yeah, wonderful. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Oxygen Advantage podcast. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and maybe take the time to leave us a review. The Oxygen Advantage podcast is available from all your podcast providers.